Hi, and welcome to Wine Goblins. This is a podcast about three best friends trying to share our love of wine with anyone willing to listen. I am on my wine journey learning about wine. Well, we all are on our wine journey, but I'm a novice and I'm here with my brother-in-law and best friend JR and Aaron. Yeah, thank you for taking us in, Danny. This is JR. Wine is a journey, and I, I hope we never find the end point because I'm enjoying our, our journey together. Aaron, would you, would you like to tell us about the recent wines you've had during these holiday times? Sure. Yeah, well, I'm just upset that the Rascal Flats don't make a wine yet because life, as well as wine, truly is a highway. It's full uh, of terroir all night long. That's Aaron. <laughs> Uh, are we talking about recent wines? That was not in the notes. I was just thinking, like, we could talk about the things you've enjoyed tasting recently. Aaron is a connoisseur of wine, and I know he has an exquisite palate. So I was thinking he probably had some great wines recently. I have. I'm glad you clarified. I thought it was a sex joke, and that's my wife, sir. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been, thanks to you, JR, I've been on a bit of a uh, Riesling kick. JR, <laughs> is what we had up at my parents' house, was that a Riesling? That was a Riesling, and I don't think we told Aaron this, but Travis actually had like half a glass of it, and he loved it. And it blew my mind that Travis would drink wine, because Travis... Yeah, Travis is uh, Danny's brother, my brother-in-law, just to context this story, but he doesn't drink, and he, for whatever reason, wanted to try some of this wine that I opened. It was a natural wine from Germany, or the Alsace? I I don't remember, but it it was Riesling. It was delicious and big hit with everyone up there. Is Riesling having a moment? I think so. It feels like it found a little nook and it just decided to take over that space. And people are starting to appreciate German wines, specifically Riesling, quite a bit more. I uh, had my mother over on Tuesday for some dinner. Father was here too. Shout out, Dan and Charmelaine. And I poured her a glass of Riesling and she had not had Riesling for many, many years and kind of associated it with, you know, cheaper, possibly sweeter wines that just weren't really her favorite. And she had one sip and lit up and she really enjoyed it and wanted wanted to take the bottle home to see if she could find it. I told her I could just get her more at the wine store because she does not go to wine stores that carry, let's just say, the wines that I would prefer to drink. That's fair. Finding a good wine store is actually hard. So Aaron and I are blessed. We have found wine stores that we now consider part of our family slash best friends. Uh, Danny's still trying to find her wine store. Still scared of them, but I'll get there. Is Riesling one of those wines that can only be made in Germany? No. Okay. R- Riesling can be made anywhere. It's just the grape and Riesling's popular in Germany. So you see quite a bit of German Riesling. Good to know. It's something like 80 or 90%. We should check on for next week's correction corner. But I think it's like at least three quarters of all wine produced in Germany is Riesling. It's a massive number like that. Speaking of corrections corner, as we previously mentioned, we talked a little bit about holiday wines last episode. And I made the mistake of calling Zinfandel the American grape. Aaron corrected me. So it's not really a correction corner. But I did want to give a shout out to vine pears article written by keith beavers about zinfandel the all-american grape that actually comes from croatia it's an incredible article it lays out how zinfandel came to america how it traveled from long island all the way to california its rise in california it's really a fantastic read if you're at all interested in zinfandel so 
make sure to give that a read. We'll try to leave the link to it in the show notes so you can get there. I believe the article's free. So make it sure to check it out. Danny, did you read the article? She's saying no. No, but I will. Okay. It's just really important to know about history. It's it's really important to just learn about origins uh, of things. But I think more importantly, above all, all else, it's just nice to know more than JR about something. It's so rare because he's such a, a dearth of information. I just really want to just point out that I knew something that JR did not. So let's just hold on to those small victories. While Aaron's holding on to that victory, I do want to mention that I recently listened to Ray Isle on The Grape Nation talk about knowledge and how people appreciate wine. And I thought his analogy was really incredible. He was talking about how you can take a friend to a baseball game. And the friend might understand how a run scored, but that's it. They might just see the a runner runs around the bases and touches home plate, and that's a run. And they can still go to a baseball game and have a good time. But you also might go with a friend who understands ERA, understands unforced errors, and they might have a different appreciation for it. And are those th- baseball terms? Those are baseball terms. Okay, thank you. And so in my mind, I was like, I can drink with Danny, and Danny will understand what good wine to her is. And maybe she doesn't understand necessarily how it's made or the grape or any of that, but like she can still say, I appreciate the wine for these reasons where I can have a glass with Aaron and we'd appreciate it for different reasons, but we're still appreciating it. And I think wine is one of the few things that we can consume that can have that similar effect. Like you can know more about it and you can appreciate it for a different reason. And fine dining is probably in that same world, but it just made me like appreciate that analogy more because like the deeper you go on your earlier as we mentioned your wine journey the more you can learn and aaron educated me on something and so now i can appreciate zinfandel after reading this article about how hard it was to get here and how much they've done to try to figure out where zen actually came from and it helped me appreciate it more so thank you to aaron for uh gifting me that during this holiday season you're welcome jr and thank you for thanking me and for being vulnerable it's very big of you okay Moving on. Are we ready to move on? I think so. Danny, did you want to talk more about baseball? I know you wanted to kind of pivot and create a baseball podcast. So during the month of November and December, uh, it's probably the best time to start talking about baseball. (laughs) Well, you guys just had a home run. So we're going to move on now. That was a slam dunk. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to move on to wine news of the week and talk about wine scores. This came up because our adorable Danny likes to throw random scores on the wines we taste, the what's in our glass of the week, and there's really no rhyme or reason to her scale, and she also has reference for vino for a reason why a wine might be good or not. And it made me think, we don't ever talk about wine scores because I don't know about Aaron, but I don't really look at them anymore. Aaron, is that kind of where you are about them? I, I also have never really taking them into account, but we can chat about that further, but correct. So the main thing from wine scores, and I think most people who go on their wine journey kind of land here is a gentleman named Robert Parker. And back in the 1980s, he started handing out a numerical figure to wines and his scores flew in the face of how people used to talk about wines because they talked about wines in more general terms. and They never kind of gave it a real number. And Robert Parker put his stamp on things and said, this wine's great. It's a 95 or this wine's great. It's a 92. 
and there was rhymes and reasons. He put up a scoring metric. There was a definitive approach to how he scored wines. And because he scored wines in this way, eventually people came to realize he would prefer a certain style of wine. And that got the term parkerization. And parkerization refers to bolder, richer styles of wine. And with anyone who becomes a figure in terms of a critique, there's always backlash. And there was a lot of backlash to Robert Parker's style of scoring. Because if you look at wine, and we sit down and we drink a bottle of wine right now, and Danny says it's a 93, I say it's a 95, Aaron says it's a 92. What does that mean? Like, is that wine great right now? Is that wine going to be great in the future? What does that really mean? And I think that's where people who put their sweat, blood, and tears into making wine had a lot of trouble dealing with it. But parkerization also introduced a whole new audience to wine. So there was a lot of positives that came from it. And then it spawned off other things, including Vivino, including Cellar Tracker, including new critics like Jeb Dunnick. And from there, it's kind of introduced a lot of people to wine. Danny, how do you feel about wine scores? Does it influence your buying power? It does. I look up every wine that I'm interested that for our wine list of the week, and I look at the scores before choosing one. So I'm heavily influenced just because I don't feel confident enough to what I know about wine to choose on my own. So I like to look at what other people have said about it. Esther Mobley, who might be America's greatest wine writer for a newspaper, did a piece on Can You Trust Vivino Scores? Esther Mobley, who I consider to be one of the greatest U.S. critics who writes for a newspaper, wrote a piece about Can You Trust Vivino? And if you're not familiar with how Vivino does their scores, it's aggregate from the public. So people can input a score on there, and then they bring all those scores together and sort out the average. And she did a blind tasting with, I think it was five or six wines from different price points and compared her score to theirs. And they aligned pretty close together, which was really shocking to me when I read the piece because it wasn't exactly what I expected. Because you would think general public might be a little bit different in how they score in terms of someone who does this as a profession. But it was kind of revealing if you do trust that sort of approach to wine scores, how beneficial that could be to you. Danny, what was your takeaway from that article? Well, when I first saw the JR's title of Can You Trust Vivino? And I clicked it, I was like, oh, no, he is just totally, totally doing this so that I stop looking at Vivino because <laughs> they make fun of me every time. So I was shocked, but also like kind of, you know, glad in a way that it at least has some kind of general agreement among people. I wouldn't say like, I would say it depends definitely on your taste. There's probably people who completely disagree with it. But for me, I think it has worked well. And I actually started looking at Vivino probably five to seven years ago when I first tried when I was first at the store and I was like, you know what? I want a glass of wine. And I bought this cheap wine with a screw top and it was the worst wine I've ever had. Well, I looked it up because I was like, is this me or do I just like not like wine? And it got like, <laughs> I don't even think it got a full one star on Vivino. 
And I was reading all the reviews and people tasted the same things as me. They're like, it tastes like Sharpie. It tastes like... (laughs) So yeah, I I enjoyed reading the article and seeing that, you know, it's not a complete, just something I should stop doing. But it's a personal taste, I think. There actually does seem to be a market for flawed wines that end up on like the shelves and people like are like, this is the worst wine I've ever had. Then other people want to try it to be like, oh, my God, this is the worst wine that, that we've ever had. Aaron, is there a critic that you trust at all? Is there when you're thinking like, oh, this wine could be great. I wonder if I should pick it up. Like, wh- what's your thought process like? I personally don't really know too many critics that are active. I was vaguely familiar with Parker, who he passed away, right? Anyway, he's not active, right? He's not active. Yeah, I, I I vaguely knew about him, but I I don't really I don't read nearly as much wine news. Robert Parker's still with us. He's just retired. Okay. Generally, six. If I if I'm interested in buying a, a bottle of wine, I try to buy it at my wine store or another local wine shop. And like we've talked about in previous episodes, I like to leverage the employees or shop owners' uh, expertise and their recommendations. Similar to what I'd like to do at a restaurant, if I can't decide, ask the server or whomever if they're really excited about a certain dish. And if they kind of light up, you can kind of tell by their their body language. That's that's usually what I want to try because, you know, there's a lot of really good wines and foods out there. And you want to trust the folks who are around it the most, because even though we're doing a wine podcast, we like to dabble and read about wine here or there. The folks who are in it all day, every day, usually have a little bit more insight. So just use their expertise. And that's one of the great that's one of the great things about utilizing a local wine shop, for example. Aaron is the most charming person that I've ever gone to wine tasting or restaurant with. And he does seem to get the horror or the server to give him the inside tips, even if he's just met this person. So he is a great guest to have with you. It's really important that if the person pouring is a male, or at least you you believe there might be uh, identifying as a male, so compliment their upper body strength and ask them how many times they squat a week because you can really tell. And if it's a, if it's a female, make sure to compliment their ma- their nails. <laughs> Danny, do not do not do that. <laughs> no. Okay, I don't actually do that, but I just wanted to say it to get a reaction out of Danny because I knew it would really just be a, be a trigger point. <laughs> Thanks, Aaron. I think one of the other things that's interesting about wine scores is how they're handed out by region. Let's, let's, Li- break, down, let's break down the tweet, JR. Live X, which ha- handles, I believe, auction prices on fine wines. So they're dealing with like the top 1% in terms of cost of wine. They're talking about the 100-point wines of 2023 regional breakdown. Bordeaux with 91, Burgundy with 27, sorry, Burgundy with 13, California with 27, Castile y Leon, which is Spain, would be three, Piedmont three, Washington two, Victoria, which I believe is Australia and South Australia with two and one respectively, and Southeastern Australia with one, Tuscany with one, Champagne with one. So... That's a lot of regions with no 100-point scores. That's a lot of 100-point scores being awarded to Bordeaux compared to any other region. And California coming in with 27 also seems a bit shocking. This came out... Shocking in in that like you'd expect less or more from California? I would definitely expect fewer wines. 
I, if you say like I've always believed, if you say a hundred point wine, you're basically saying this is a perfect wine. And are there really twenty seven perfect wines from one vintage? And is twenty twenty three a perfect vintage? Like I think, like I feel like there's way more questions there than they're allowing for with giving that many wines that high of a score. Well, with the with the data sheet that we are going off of, which is pretty limited, but you can definitely tell uh, Bordeaux is heavily weighted. And if folks know about Bordeaux, it's primarily Merlot and Cab Sauve with some Cab Franc, but almost all the time, there are exceptions, of course, but usually it's big, heavy, bold, heavily oaked red wines that pair really well with red meat and things like that. So obviously you can tell that even though there are incredible winemakers, incredible grapes, incredible winemaking techniques that span many centuries it's still so weighted towards bordeaux it's kind of almost in my opinion kind of throws off like what's even the point of these hundred hundred point scores because you should just make a big bold beautiful red wine which are great but there's no way in hell that gamay from Beaujolais is going to be on here if that's their taste there's no way that a sauve blanc from new zealand is going to be on here even though those are all incredible wines that can be made with the same level of artisanship and care so I don't know. It just kind of sh- goes to show there are lots of biases and preferences in that community of people that rate wines. Danny, would surprise you to know that there's a company out there that can analyze your wine if you're a winemaker and tell you what to do differently to get a higher point score. Yeah. How do they do? They is it people who come and taste it and tell you? Yeah, and then they break it down scientifically to tell you what needs to improve in the wine. This goes back to like non-natural wine basically when you can add additives to it and what you need to add in order to increase the score you'll get. And that actually exists. That actually exists. And it's a lucrative market that some wineries, I don't know if I should say, but some wineries that are pretty prominent in California use, which also claim they use just to know what their, what flavor profiles are in their wines that the mass public will identify with. But it's also been used to help them get higher scores from critics, which feels like a dirty part of this whole industry. I feel like it kind of is just because it's they don't change their process. They change what they add to the wine. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, that's weird. OK, but when did they also change the process a little bit? Like, for example, this needs more time in the barrels. This perhaps could be blended with something lighter or more full bodied. Could that also be something that they critique? That could be, but I think for the most part, these this is talking about wineries that use make, mega purple juice, which is an additive that was relatively popular from just in terms of making a deeper, richer red color, purple color to wines to get that high alcohol, super sweet flavor profile that was so prominent in like California cult wines at a certain time. Got it. That's and it's probably it's probably a lot cheaper just to add things to the wine versus changing how you make the wine, right? Yeah. And I mean, changing how you make a wine takes years, could take decades. So like just adding something in the process of making wine is obviously the shortcut. It's almost the microwave to winemaking where like you don't have to do much in the vineyard to change things. And then if you're if you get judged and get 100 points, you can put a sticker or label on your wine, right? Yeah, and it's it, it's massive for your like for your business, right? For the economics of the business, having that hundred point score can mean the difference between like making a ton of money that year or thinking about bankruptcy. Is there 
like a certain company or like who gives this hundred point score? Can who? What is it? So Robert Parker has his own wine advocate, so he has his own thing. There's other reviewers out there. William Kelly's a famous one in Burgundy. Jeb Dunnock's a famous one from Central Coast. So there's multiple critiques reviewers out there who give scores. And are they like accredited somehow to give out this hundred point score? Yes and no. It's it's like there's no real accreditation from it. It's just who you respect and trust in terms of the score. It's like it's like a movie reviewer in a sense. Like, is there any accreditation there? Like, sure, there's some who have a resume that you'll trust more than others. And yeah. So theoretically, I could start an Instagram and be like, Danny, the sommelier. Okay. Is that how even how you say it? That's how you say it. Somalian. It's in East Africa next to Ethiopia (laughs) and Eritrea. So I could create this Instagram. down. Sorry. Thank you, Aaron. So I could create this Instagram and I could just start posting like pictures of wine or me at wineries and drinking wine and like pretend I have some kind of yeah history. That's that's ninety percent of my Instagram following right now. I mean, there's it's, it's, there's a lot of people out there who do that and like the access that like, the public like, has. If I'm like, I give this wine. A score of a hundred. Can they just get this sticker? I mean, I don't know if they do that for some Instagram account. I think they do that for some print because the print would tell them, like, "Hey, you got a hundred point score." But I got a job at the New York Times. Yes, reviewing one. Okay, but we don't. We don't want to take Eric's job. Shout out to Eric. Um, Danny is not (laughs) coming for your job. If you would know. It's similar in music too. A lot of local bands, they hire a PR firm, pay X amount of money. And whether or not it, it, they, they can basically have these blog, these, there's these blogs all across the internet that exist strictly to write a, br- a brief write up about a band, about an album, et cetera. And then that way the band on their social media can say, Hey, thanks outlet XYZ for the write up. Really appreciate it. And they can link it to it. And it's, it exists. It's real, but is it, but it's kind of part of a bigger, machine that exists just to kind of create buzz so i I think when it comes down to all this i think as a consumer you need to be a little weary about it but to danny's point about vivino it can be sorry go ahead danny i was just about to bring that up it's almost like you can trust vivino because it's so many people yeah all giving their reviews right and and like anything else i think it's really important just to take it with a grain of salt so let's say for example you want to bring a bottle of wine to a dinner party. There's two bottles that are $20, $25. You see that you're interested in for whatever reason, the person at the wine shop might recommend them. And let's just say you pull up your phone in Vivino and one has a 85 and one has an 81. That just might be the, the uh, decision point right there. I'll go with one that has 85 just as a decision point. Danny, do you want to correct him? Oh, right. It's, it's five stars on Vivino. It's not maybe one. Shoot. It's not like a Rotten Tomatoes percentage. No, I thought Danny was going to jump all over that. She looks so excited. Well, but I was just I, excited he was talking about Vivino. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on from our wine news of the week, I also do just want to mention what Aaron's mentioned a few times is that finding a wine shop and trusting their opinion can lead to a lot better experience for you. And once they know like what you like, they'll make great recommendations. And speaking of what we like, our next feature for the podcast is called Wine List of the Week. I find a restaurant, we talk about the food, we talk about the restaurant, then we look at the wine list and we pick a bottle from the wine list that we want to go with our meal. 
Aaron, would you like to mention what restaurant we're talking about this week? Yes, it's Bur- Burdell or Burdell. I assume Burdell. It's I based think in, that's right, yeah. It's based in Oakland, Oakland, California. It's They serve soul food, which uh, is making me hungry just thinking about it right now. So it's a lot of West Africa-influenced Southern food, greens, delicious ham hocks, chicken, things of that nature. Check out their menu. It's, again, like it looks delicious. I would absolutely kill to go here. Homemade biscuits. But they do have a pretty pretty good wine list, which I was a little surprised about given just given it's soul food. It's a lot of European wine. And I don't know how I feel about it. I picked this restaurant because it appeared on Esquire Magazine's Best New Restaurants in the United States for 2023, along with Rory's Place, which is a restaurant we mentioned a few times in the previous episode, which all three of the besties have gone to dine at and had a wonderful time at. This place just it looks pretty rare in terms of the type of cuisine. And Aaron is kind of our expert in cuisine and pairings, I would say, because <laughs> I don't really care. So I'm going to let Aaron maybe start us off with which wine he's picking this week. Well, yeah, this one's pretty tricky because although it is a terrific wine list, I, I'm just guessing here, probably 90 to 95%, 90% easily is foreign. And I feel like if you're going to soul food, you have to have something domestic and American. So because there's, if I'm weeding out most of the Italians and Spanish and French and Australians, which is, which are all, I'm sure, terrific, delicious, beautiful wines, I'm going to go with a Merlot from Sonoma. This is Keep Wines, which I've not heard of. They're Keep Wines, Broadway Farms Merlot 2019. Jer, have you heard of this winery by chance, this winemaker? I have not. Okay. So from Sonoma. So Figure Aaron, 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 I was literally going to choose this wine. Wow. Only re- I changed it right before we started. Like, no joke. I changed it last minute because, because I was like, you know what? They probably don't want me to choose an American wine. <laughs> wow. Same wavelength. <clears throat> wow. That's, that's, pretty, that's pretty funny. But yeah, I'd say just go for American wine. I, I with the Merlot, I'm sure it'll pair really well with. I should pull up the menu again. I closed out of it, my mistake. But definitely a lot of the meats, the heavier, heavier fare. I think it would pair really well with. And it's not cheap, but we are still in the Bay Area, and let's be honest, this wine list is not. There's there's some affordable ones, but it's not the it's not the most affordable wine list. But it is seventy five dollars, so a little on the pricier side for what I would prefer, but. I think that would be pair really nicely with what we're what we're gonna eat. Danny, do you want to go next? So, because it sounds like I, I took your wine, or at least your original thought. Yeah, that's hilarious. So, what I ended up going with is I'm not even sure if I'm saying this right, but it is the Doctor Edge Ambrosia. Mm. It's a Pinot Gris skin contact wine, 2022 from Australia. So you're just you're just hitting all all of the buzzwords for me. Skin contact, Danny cho- choosing Pinot Gris again, <laughs> going Pinot down Gris. under to Australia. You're just Grigio. begging for me to make a sex joke. Grigio Girls makes an appearance again. Grigio Girls. Are we not allowed to choose the same kind twice? There's no, you, just you, right. you, you are, but I'm still thinking about your pick from last week. <laughs> $170 Pinot Gris. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, this one, this one is... $68. Okay. A little Almost bit nice. on the more. Right. And the reason that I really ended up going with this one is because the wine, the winemaker has notes 
Well, first of all, there is no Vivino on this one. There's not oh. enough. Oh, wow. Yeah, there's not enough for Vivino to have it. So, yeah, I was like, whoa, that's interesting. We're flying blind, guys. Yeah, we are. <laughs> and the winemaker has a note and he's, yeah, it's a he. He says it's a bunch of stuff. It's a Pinot Gris <laughs> fruit from the Tamar Valley fermented on skins for one week. It's pressed to old oak casts to dry out and relax for two months, then bottled without filtration. Ambrosia is a sexually confused robot who thinks it is immortal. A story as old as time itself. <laughs> but anyways, on this website, it's called Different Drop. They described it as a very a wine with a lot of personality and... They say that you will swoon over this one. It has fresh notes of honey, lychee, lychee, elderflower, peach, and cantaloupe. So I thought that was interesting. I thought it'd be a nice balance to soul food because it sounds on the lighter side. Maybe a little sweet too? Yeah. And that's that's my choice. Incredible pick. This is why I love the wine list because Danny will educate me about something. Last week, it was about her love for Pinot Gris from the All Sauce. This week, it's about her love of skin contact wines. Uh, my pick for this week, because Aaron kink shamed me into picking a US California producer, is La Onda. La Onda is a Northern California producer who spends, I believe, half the year in Chile. So I'm technically cheating, but this is actually one of his wines from the Sierra Foothills called Amor Amarillo. Uh, it's a Sauvignon Blanc blend, $79. So I'm sneaking in there a great price point where no one's going to make me pick up the tab. And it's going to be a delicious uh, Blanc. I've had some of his wines before, thanks to Midtown Wine, our favorite place in the world. So great choices by all three of us i think tonight wait where's your wine i don't see it on the list it's under but, white oh thanks, thanks i apologize i thought you said capsov not Sav blanc that is my mistake wine goblin faux pas <laughs> yeah it looks terrific <laughs> and now we can move on to if danny wants to danny's hot take of the week ba, 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 ba. <laughs> instead of a hot take of the week uh -oh. because i don't have one what if we talk about what we drank uh, last week together, JR? Yeah, I mean, it had to come up at some point, right? It uh, my what my mother. What happened? Wait, guys? first, let's put a disclaimer. This is not an affordable thing we're about to talk about, and we apologize. Yeah, this does not fit the MO of this podcast, which did, is... Did you two take a, a private jet to Bali again? So prior to Thanksgiving, I had texted Danny the potential wines that I was bringing to Thanksgiving, including the champagne. And Danny texted back very directly, don't worry about the champagne. So <laughs> which <laughs> which raised my red flags. Like I was like, oh, God, what is she trying to tell me? So when I showed up to our Thanksgiving, our shared family Thanksgiving, I looked in the fridge to discover a 2013 vintage of Dom Perignon. And I was not expecting that. We we usually have decent, good wines at our family meals, but we haven't really had an extravagant bottle of any wine up there. And it was my first experience with Dom Perignon. It's, it's quite an experience. It's... Like the word that I always thought of when I was drinking it was effervescence. It has these tiny bubbles that just like 
delicately sit on your tongue. And it's something I'd say any wine person should try because of how prominent that brand is in the wine world. And it's probably on my list for best wines that I've had in 2023. I know this is just like coming off as a humble brag, but it was a really enjoyable experience. And it's incredible that that wine can exist in the quantities that they make at such a high level. JR, would you say that the effervescent bubbles brought you to life, not dissimilar to the band Evanescence? I would say that I poured a glass, maybe a half glass of it. And I told everyone else to leave me alone. I walked over and I sat next to the hot tub and I just thought about how great life is. So yes, to Aaron's question, that is how I reached Nirvana. So like most listeners who unfortunately could not partake in this, what if someone wanted to pick up a bottle of 2013 Dom Perignon, Dom Perignon, how do you Mm -hmm. say it in French? Okay, close enough. What what would someone need to drop roughly? Ballpark. About three hundred dollars, right? Yeah, you're you're ballparking it between two hundred and three hundred. I think Costco probably has the cheapest prices on it, so you're probably in the low two hundreds. But for most places that you'll find it, it's going to be near three hundred. So not cheap. Don't get me wrong. Definitely a special occasion wine. I don't think the wine at Christmas is going to be at the same level, but you can still have a good time for not as much money too you know okay i will yeah i will say kobe tried it and he was like whoa this is good so kobe is danny's husband sometimes lover and he doesn't drink either as we previously mentioned about travis not even just that he doesn't drink he does not like wine or champagne so this was one of the rare times where everyone asked for a glass and even after that i think I was the only one who got a second class. So shout out to my loving mother-in-law who who hooked it up for the guy who brought the turkey and the pies. Big baller status. Now, JR, do you have other sensibilities similar to a mid-2000s rapper? Because Don Perignon is kind of up there for me. Do you like to ghost ride the whip as well? Speaking of that, I would be interested in trying Crystal after experiencing Dom. So I, I am now uh, available for anyone who wants to take me on a date and treat me to a bottle of Crystal. We just don't have to tell my wife. I will also bring a bottle of hip- Hypnotic. Wow. What an offer. Yeah. Well, what terrific. well thanks for sharing that story. Um, I feel very left out and frankly, just alone and sad. <laughs> but the thing you can be included on is what's in our glass this week? Aaron, what is in our glass this week? Jared, I'm so glad you asked. So today we have a beautiful, lovely, elegant, I'm just going to say sexy bottle of a white burgundy Oof, from baby. 20, 2019 vintage. Now, Danny, when, when someone says a white burgundy, do you know what that is as a more novice wine drinker? No. Okay, great. That's totally fine. We're here to learn. We're here to grow. We're here to be vulnerable. So a white burgundy is almost always, well, it'll be a Chardonnay, whereas a red burgundy would be Pinot Noir. Those are the two most dominant grapes. And actually, a lot of people don't realize this. uh, Chardonnay, I think, is like 60 or 65% of all grape production in burgundy total. So we have a 2019 burgundy. You guys will not believe this. JR picked it. I know. I know. You guys are all shocked. But just if you can get compose yourself and gather (laughs) yourself again. This is just 
excuse my language, but darn terrific. It is a Cote de Dijon, which actually I find very uncommon. Usually there's not many wines that are from the Dijon area. Is that correct, JR? Usually a little further south. I'm going to take you guys on a little bit of a journey. We're going to contextualize this wine, and I think it'll impress both of you. This wine is made by Domaine de la Crosse, who the head winemaker is Mark Sawyer there. Dijon, which is the capital of Burgundy, did an application process about 10 years ago for who could farm their vines around the city. And they were open to anyone. I believe you had to live in Burgundy at the time, but it was anyone who didn't come from a family that owned vineyards. So any person, man, woman, child, whatever, could apply for this and you would be tasked with farming and tending to the vines around the capital of Burgundy. Quite a responsibility, also quite like a lucrative place to hold uh, grapes. Mark, who was working for Bizot at the time, which is a super famous, expensive uh, winery in Burgundy, applied, and he ended up being selected as the person to lead this. Obviously, immediately, he changed over to organic farming. The only cost that Dijon asked for, the city asked for, was a certain allotment of bottles so he has to pay them in bottles not money just bottles they can do whatever they want with it but he gets to keep the rest run his business however he wants and dijon as aaron mentioned is mainly known as a region that grows for pinot but he has specific vineyards that no one else has access to so some of his wines are referred to as monopoles do you know what that means danny Danny's shaking her head. Yeah, no, I don't. Please let me know. So a monopole is when one winemaker has access to all of the vines in that vineyard. And it's incredibly rare because of how many winemakers there are in Burgundy, and it's incredibly sought after. So is it less rare in the United States? It is because there's more estate bottlings here, and we don't have Grand Crew or Premier Crew titles. So our vineyards aren't as esteemed as they are there because of those titles, which some Should people talk say, about the titles real quick. Go for it, Aaron. Okay. At a high level, let's just say what 80, 90, hundred years ago, mm-hmm. certain plots of land were given the status of premier crew, grand crew. Are there, are there other ones we should talk about? Or just those two, just those okay. two. And it just stays. It sticks with the plot of land, regardless of who's making wine, whomever. Yes. Jack, just yes, the Danny. land, not the grapes. Correct. So the grapes that come from that land would be Grand Cru or Premier Cru. So you can theoretically like tear out the current grapes and plant new. No, there's a lot of rules on it. A lot of rules. So okay, you, you aren't allowed to just do whatever you want. And obviously, as Aaron previously mentioned, there's only certain grapes that are allowed to grow in Burgundy and Bordeaux and those regions. So you can't just like cross over and plant whatever you want. But okay, please continue, Aaron. Right. So. Once that land, and these are very sm- relatively very small plots of land, is given that designation, it just sticks. Now, of course, like what JR said, the there are rules in place. I can't just start planting cap uh, Sauvignon Blanc instead of Chardonnay. I have to plant Chardonnay in my Premier Cru or Grand Cru uh, land, but you, you just stick to that de- designation. So there's a lot of history. There's a lot of rules and regulations, but. It's the land, whereas I believe, let's say in Bordeaux, for example, it's the winery itself. And every 10 years, they, re- they reclassify. So a Grand Cru in Bordeaux is not the same as a Grand Cru in Burgundy. 
there's a lot of religious influence from the monks in terms of where the Grand Cruz and Premier Cruz are in Burgundy because of where they were initially planted. And they've just kind of stuck with it. And obviously, there's some winemakers who think it needs to be reshuffled. And there's others who have the holdings who don't want to reshuffle it at all. So it, it's it's an interesting dynamic. And the deeper you go into Burgundy, the more you find out about it and the more you learn which vineyards you prefer. But going back to what's in our glass this week, this I was so excited to try and I was so excited for the three of us to have because one, Danny has previously mentioned on her hot take of the week that she hates Chardonnay. And two, this is just like an incredible wine experience contextualized. Like you're not going to get to try this wine all that often. It's not super out there it's affordable it's 35 ish dollars somewhere around there you can find it online through a few different retailers but and they'd make quite a bit of it i think there's almost twelve thousand bottles out there so like a thousand cases of it out there but it's just so interesting that like a city the capital of burgundy would hire someone to run their vineyards and produce this type of wine and let the person do what they wanted to do and seeing what he's produced in the time he's been there has is it's a great experience for me and one of the more exciting wines that I think we've tried this season. So Danny, what are your thoughts on the wine? You mentioned you didn't like Chardonnay. This is a Chardonnay. What do you think? I, if you hadn't told me this was a Chardonnay, I wouldn't have picked up on that. It is delicious. It's very light. It doesn't have that butteriness that I just right. don't like. Like it's not a prominent taste in this one. This one's almost like, I don't know, I might be crazy, but it, it almost is florally to me that might be a little crazy no no florally is definitely a characteristics of certain winemakers and burgundy and it definitely shines through in this wine as aaron mentioned it's a 2019 so relatively young and i don't think any of us decanted it so you're still getting those early notes on, on the nose yeah and this is a really good example of you know granted this is a what 35 40 bottle of wine so for most people, not an everyday wine, which is totally fine. But, you know, you bring it to a dinner party or you're saving it for a special occasion, a special night. It's just terrific. And you, you, you shouldn't let a specific type of grape define what you like or don't like. It's all about everything else. Yeah, we're having pizza tomorrow. And I think this is going to pair really well with it. Absolutely. This would probably pair well with pretty much anything. It's so Yeah, well it's very... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm getting, I mean, there's definitely a lot going on. I think it needs to open up a little bit more to kind of, at least for me, and maybe get closer to room temp. It was pretty chilled for me to get more of the notes, but I, it's so, so, so strange. I'm almost getting like a buttery popcorn. Like, I don't know. It's so strange. I don't know. I, I can't really explain it. It's definitely some sensations that I just haven't really experienced, but it's not buttery like a traditional oaked, you know, California white Chardonnay. So. I, I, I'm really enjoying this. It's terrific. I really want to savor this for a few days. The last thing I'll mention about it is on the label, there's an owl. And that is the animal, the the logo of Dijon. So that's why that's there in case you guys were curious. Because when I first saw it, I was like, why is that there? Uh, but the owl, a noble and respected animal, dar- darning our, uh, adorning our glass. Per- permission to flex? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I had the opportunity to go to France last year and we did spend three nights in the city of Dijon, did a bike ride through the vineyards in Burgundy, south of Dijon. And it is a terrific city I'd recommend anyone to go to, but there is a really cute owl tour where you go to like, I think it's city hall 
and you get a little pamphlet and then you go and find the owls on the streets everywhere and they have little owl trinkets at the flea markets and things of that nature so folks listening can't see it but i'm holding a little owl uh trinket or as they call sweat in france that's just adorable so shout out owls shout out dijon shout out burgundy and and danny i think you were next in, in line dijon like the mustard exactly is that, yes. is that where the mustard comes from it is named for it yes so they they take their mustard very seriously there love that stuff yeah, it's pretty incredible. I'm actually still trying to find anything. There, there's We had one meal that had Dijon mustard, and I'm still trying to find anything that was even similar to it. It was just so unique, and it's just, anyway. JR, did you tell us what you thought about this? Talk to us, babe. Yeah, tell us. I was so happy with this. I think whenever you get your hopes up about wine and you contextualize it with the research you put behind it and try to figure out the winemaker's decision, one of the parts when I was opening this that kind of threw me a little bit was the 14% alcohol. That's Mm -hmm. pretty high for a white burgundy. I'd say that's in the 12 to 13% normally. Is is where like the normal range is. I think 2019 was a hot was a hot vintage, if I remember correctly. I remember the Reds did really well in 2019, but to me, this wine singing, it's everything I want in a in a white Burgundy. It's got the nose on it. It's got the aftertaste. It sits on your tongue for a while. It's mm-hmm. like Aaron said. I want to see it evolve over the next few days. Let's see if it lasts that long. Uh, I'm currently on daddy duty with a six month old, so survival is uh maybe sometimes in the bottle well jr you're known for lasting a while so i think this will be no problem just to savor this just a lot of sips be just fine (laughs) now uh danny if you're ready for it i think you can do our sign off i do want to mention that next week we will be talking about one of danny's wine picks so danny if you want to preview that no danny does not want to preview that we're talking about italian red next week But Danny, do you want to give us a wine goblin sign off? Ciao, Bella. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hope you enjoyed it. Follow us on Instagram and subscribe. Thank you. We did it, guys.